0: Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. On today's show, we tackle the complicated and nuanced issues surrounding Asian women, reproductive justice, and gender discrimination. We start here in the U.S., where abortion foes are using Asian-American women as a wedge in their push to restrict reproductive rights.
1: It's one of the reasons why it's such a sexist law is because Asian-American women are put forward as having these preferences for sons, which does not exist. Providers would be more likely to ask Asian women why they are seeking an abortion.
0: And then we turn abroad, where gender bias has yielded some troubling and unintended consequences. So
2: we documented women who were abducted, kicked. imprisoned by families, being forced to become pregnant, and then many who were released or allowed to return home without their children once they'd given birth once or twice.
0: We shouldn't abort female fetuses with any more frequency than male fetuses. On its face, that seems like a no-brainer, right? Right. And that seemingly simple, even seemingly feminist logic is what anti abortion lawmakers are relying on when they introduce PRENDA bills. PRENDA stands for Prenatal Non Discrimination Act, and several states have passed these laws which criminalize the practice of seeking an abortion based on the sex of the fetus. What could be so bad about that? Lots. Tell us more about why Prenda Laws are particularly insidious and racist. We're joined by two guests from the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, Winnie Yee, who is the communications and community engagement chair. Welcome to 112BK Thank you. and Becca Asaki, the NYC organizer. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. Um, So let's start off with just an overview of Prenda Laws. They sound great on the surface or at least, Mm. you know, innocuous. Mm. But Winnie, can you tell us why actually they're highly problematic?
3: Yeah, it's exactly what you just said. So, sex-selective abortion bans or Prenda bills um, are actually just a political ruse. It's really like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, so, the law would stipulate that it would be illegal for doctors and providers to provide abortion care if they suspected that a woman was doing it because of a preference for a sex. Um, but Actually, that is not the case at all. And it's important to note that sex-selective abortion bans are rooted, like you said, in anti-immigrant sentiment, in racism, in sexism, and they specifically target the Asian American Pacific Islander uh, community. Um, So this is actually based on um, a false notion Mm -hmm. that uh, Asian American women prefer sons to daughters, but that's not the case. There's no factual evidence for that claim. Um, And in fact, a study by the University of Chicago in 2014 found that Asian American women actually had more daughters compared to their white counterparts. So this is really just politicians, once again, um, trying to co-opt feminism and to use Asian American women as political pawns to advance um, their extreme agenda, which is to one, you know, ban abortion in this country, and two, if they can't ban it, push it further out of reach by putting in place these obstacles.
0: Right, it's just trying to chip away Mm -hmm. at the reproductive rights of women. And -hmm. I think, as you mentioned, what's really tricky about this is that they position it as a feminist issue, right? Where it's Mm -hmm. like, well, if you're a feminist, obviously you don't want somebody to uh, abort female fetuses Mm -hmm. on the basis of sex. Um, So Becca, walk me through this criminalization. What would that mean if an Asian-American woman, for example, presents at her doctor's office and says, I would like to terminate my pregnancy? If there's a Prenda law in place, Mm -hmm. what then happens? basically it would put the onus on the provider
1: to call into question why someone is seeking an abortion. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it's such a sexist law is because, because Asian American women are put forward as having these um, preferences for sons, which does not exist, as, mm-hmm. as Winnie mentioned, um, providers would be more likely to ask um, Asian women why they are seeking an abortion. Um, and we think that, that, you know, that adds an additional barrier to women that are trying to seek the full the full extent of care for themselves. It's Um,
3: basically like racially profiling your patients. You know, when you mm -hmm. go into a doctor's office, you're just trying to get the care that you need and to just go about your day. But doctors, you know, this would create a chilling effect for them to basically be profiling their patients. And this would actually also punish doctors. You know, there would be fines um, that they would have to face. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think it's important to note that this is a medical procedure. Mm right? And it's not like when you go to an oral surgeon for your wisdom teeth, to be taken out, right? They ask you, like, well, why do you want your wisdom mm-hmm. teeth taken out? Is there, like, is that some cultural thing that exactly. you do,
1: right? And we think that it would basically would target a lot more uh, recent immigrants or other people who have already uh, barriers, whether it's right. language barriers or, or cultural barriers in being able to express themselves and their desires in a um, in a medical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that the decision should be one that is made in between doctors and their patients and that lawmakers should not be in, in um, speculating as to why women are seeking abortions.
0: Right. And so some of these laws have been passed at the state level. Is that right, Winnie? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me some of the states where prenda yeah. laws are on the books?
3: So they're on the books in eight states. So states like I think the Dakotas, Um, I want to also say Illinois, Indiana, but in Illinois and Indiana, they're not in effect. So last year, a U.S. Court of Appeals in the 7th District actually struck down Prenda and said that this is an unconstitutional law.
0: And, Becca, do these laws specifically target Asian-American women? Like, does the word Asian appear in the wording of the bill?
1: Yeah, so in a lot of bills they can say specifically in the preamble, like in the the reasoning as to why they want to be passed, that this is a common practice among Asian communities. And that's one of the reasons why we see through it as like so significantly, so obviously and blatantly um, a racist law. And even in bills that they don't specifically call this out, many times politicians will speak about the Asian American community specifically um,
0: when discussing the bills. Right, it's used a lot in the marketing of the Mm -hmm. bills, right, Right. to potential voters.
3: They're trying to use Asian American women um, as a wedge, you know, as to say that this is about gender equality when that couldn't be further from the truth. Asian American women already face so many barriers when it comes Mm -hmm. to accessing health care, whether that be they don't have affordable insurance coverage, if they're undocumented, um, if they are low income and can't afford the co-pays, or if they just can't even navigate, you know, the complex like health insurance and health uh, systems. I would say, you know, if politicians really did care about gender equality, they would be making sure that people, every person in this country had affordable um, and comprehensive insurance coverage. You know, they would be focused on passing paid family leave, equal pay for equal work. But instead, they're really just Mm -hmm. trying to use these racist and sexist stereotypes to ultimately ban abortion in this country.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. One issue is that there is a study that was done that was pointing to, to the 2000 census, and this is something that was like covered on NPR and in the New York Times, mm-hmm. and um, people who support these sex-selective abortion bills often point to this and say, well, th- it is a problem in this country. Uh, the census showed that Asian American women, and I think it was like Korean, Chinese, and Indian women who had a third child where the first two children were girls had a 50% higher likelihood than Caucasian women of having a male baby. And people use this um, to say that this shows that there is some type of like pre-birth selection going on, whether that's sex-selective abortion or in vitro fertilization or some other type of gender determination. So you referenced a more recent study. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is taken from, from data from the year 2000. Can you talk a little bit about that recent study and what it shows and why this is not something that people need to fear?
3: The study by the University of Chicago, it basically found that Asian American women actually had more daughters than their white counterparts, basically saying that sex-selective abortion is not a thing and that really, at the end of the day, we should just kind of trust women to make the decisions that are best for them and to plan their families in the way that they want to. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that this is a rhetorical difficulty often with talking to, uh, you know, uh, other feminists or, or people about why prenda bills are not necessary and are in fact racist is because, um, you know, historically perhaps sex-selective abortion has been a problem, especially in countries like Asian India where, you know, currently there is a woman shortage as a result of patriarchal and sexist mm-hmm. policies, um, the one-child policy in China, for mm-hmm. example. How do you go about asking people to sort of hold these two ideas in their head, Um, that in China and India, there is a shortage of women, and that in the U.S., sex-selective abortion is not an active issue in an Asian-American population, and we shouldn't use this, be allowed to be used as a wedge issue?
1: Mm -hmm. People are rightly concerned about gender inequality across the world. Um, and really want to figure out what are the things that we can do to, to fight gender inequality. A- as Winnie was saying, if you really truly care about women's rights, if you truly care about women excelling and, and having full at- autonomy over our mm-hmm. lives, families and communities, like equal pay for equal work, livable wages, childcare, being free from sexual harassment in the yeah. workplace, like there's so many things that we can be doing that will actually get to some of the root causes of gender inequality. But sex-selective abortion bans are not the way there.
3: And I think you're right. Like, you know, there is patriarchy. there There is colonialism. There are all these sort of structures. And so I think that's why it's even more important to make sure that women have access to the full range of reproductive health care. Mm-hmm.
0: As Asian-American women, does this resonate with you, the rhetoric that you're hearing by anti-abortion activists who are putting forward pregnant bills that women aren't valued in Asian American communities? Yeah. um, I mean, I I won't (laughs) speak
1: for Winnie, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's such an important issue for us is, you know, I know in my family, like women are celebrated. We are like the leaders of our family, our community, mm-hmm. and for people to say that Asian Americans don't care about girl children is it's offensive. Yeah. You know, it's deeply offensive and deeply hurtful, and I th- and think really drives me to to say like this is why we are pushing back. You know, in New York, we're pushing for a resolution, uh, the City Council to pass a resolution saying uh, against these um, sex selective abortion bans because we want New York to kind of stand up and stand with our families and say, like, this is not an issue in our community. It's offensive that you're saying that it is an issue in our community, that you're using us as a wedge when, you know, we know that that women are celebrated in our community. And we want also to take on sexism in our community and in the United States um, and are leading in that in that fight. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Like, while sexism is a thing, you know, it is it is seeped into our country, Um, it's These bans are just a distraction. Um, They're just really Mm. a political ruse. And I think it's really insulting that politicians are trying to pin Asian Americans against other women. You know, women of color have been at the forefront of the fight for reproductive rights. And so Mm. it's really just very insulting that they are trying to use us as a political pawn. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that NAPOF
0: is trying to pass a resolution Mm -hmm. at the state level in New York. Is New York in danger of having... A a Prenda law submitted to the legislature?
3: There are currently, I believe, six states who have introduced Prenda like laws um, across the country and they're moving. Like they are passing uh, legislative chambers. Mm -hmm. In New York, you know, even though we're a progressive state, we have seen anti choice bills pop up. You know, one of the Prenda bills has been introduced even in Oregon. And so I think that's why it's so important for New York City to kind of take a stand. Not only is New York City one of the leaders when it comes to reproductive freedom, but you know, there's a large, a large number of Asian Americans who live in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so I think when there's a lot of misinformation going around, that's where elected officials can really stand up, voice opposition to this insidious bill and to really say that this is not aligned with our values of ensuring that everybody um, has access to reproductive health care. And what about on the national level? On the national level, I think there definitely are politicians um, who are galvanized. Honestly, they will say whatever they can and use whatever claims they can to push their extreme agenda Right. And, and and many
0: anti-abortion politicians are in the books as saying if we can't overturn Roe exactly. v. Wade, we will chip away at abortion rights Exactly. however we can. Exactly.
3: Mm-hmm. We'll make sure that w- poor women just can't have abortions, mm-hmm. you know, with the Hyde Amendment. We'll make sure that women of color can't have abortions with laws like Prenda.
1: In many ways, uh, NAPOF has been fighting these sex-selective abortion bans across the country as they've come up. Yeah. But in you know in New York City, we're trying to have pass It's a city uh, resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so New York State, the it's been uh, Prenda bill has been introduced every year since 2015. Wow. Um, yeah. And so we are uh, one of the reasons why we want New York City to pass the resolution is if we in progressive, you know, leader in reproductive justice, New York City, city with the largest Asian population in the country, like, can't, if we can't move it here, where can we move it, right? And, and I think that we're actually calling on the city to, to really take a stance in support of us here. But it's also in the context of the it's in this national context of how uh, Prenda is being more and more introduced in different states, as you said, to kind of chip away at the rights we already have.
0: Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Becca, Winnie, thank you so much. Thank you for yeah, having thank us.
2: Thank you.
0: In the U.S., sex-selective abortion is a wedge issue cynically used by anti-choice activists to limit the reproductive rights of women. But in other parts of the world, sex selection has led to an alarming problem, a woman shortage to the tune of about 80 million. This has created some devastating consequences for women, particularly in Asia, where the shortage is most profound. From Human Rights Watch, on the phone, we're joined by Liesl Gernholz, the executive director of their women's rights division. Liesl, welcome to 112BK.
2: Thank you very much, Mackenzie.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about this problem, specifically in China and India?
2: Well, in China and India, you've had very specific government policies that have led to the so-called woman shortage. So in China, you have had a policy that sort of from the early 80s right up until 2015 um, was a one-child policy. And this was attempting to limit the size of families, but in, in effect, what it did do was lead to sex-selective abortions, um, female infanticide, and so on. So you had large numbers of families who really did everything in their power to make sure that their only child was a boy. And in India, you've also had a lot of uh, sex-selective abortions, but also a range of other measures that also privileged sons. So in two of the most populous countries in the world, you have very few skewed sex ratios um, and very large numbers of men and much smaller numbers of girls.
0: And partially, as you mentioned, this can be attributed to abortion um, or infanticide, but in other cases, it might just be, for example, that maybe girls receive uh, fewer trips to the doctor or in, in other ways die uh, at a young age. Is yes, that is there that there accurate?
2: Whole, yes, there are a whole range of practices that really meant that girls had less access to health care. And when we're talking about girls, we're talking often about babies. So you have everything from sex-selective abortions to less access to health care, to less food, to less care, to a whole range of practices, both cultural and traditional, that privilege boys over girls and and leading or helping create this um, skewed sex ratio.
0: And talk to me about some of those reasons why a family might want a boy rather than a girl.
2: Well, you have sort of, I mean, at the root of it really is gender discrimination, where boys were just seen as more important than girls. In some societies, when girls marry, they are expected to leave their family's home and live with the family of their husband, which means that boys in the family are traditionally then expected to take care of elderly parents. So There's sort of a financial incentive for families to have boys. Many of the societies where you see these skewed sex ratios um, have practices like dowry payments, so much more expensive for families to have girls because they have to pay bride wealth. So, you know, a whole range of practices that really have their roots in gender discrimination and the devaluing of girls.
0: I think often when we talk about this, the blame comes down to the pregnant women. You know, we think of them as as monsters for aborting girl babies. But actually what you're describing is a climate in which cultural practices um, devalue women and force parents into uncomfortable choices.
2: I think that's right, and I think in, in China in particular, you have these cultural practices that were then reinforced and supported by government laws and policies. So it's not only sort of society in general, but it is often sort of policies on the part of particular governments that continue to shape gender discrimination. So, and yes, I think sort of the sense that women are in control and are able to make these decisions is really not borne out when you see the kinds of pressure that are put on women to produce sons. When you have laws and policies that mean that, you know, in China, you had a practice of forcible abortions for families who had more than one child. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is always very interesting that, in essence, the people with the least power in this equation are often the ones who are blamed for what happened.
0: And let's talk a little bit about the current situation in China, where there are thirty-four million more males, approximately, than women, and in India, where there's thirty-seven million. Um, What has this led to? What are some of the unintended consequences of this gender bias?
2: So, one of the things that we've documented in China has been the phenomenon of bride trafficking, and what we have seen is 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 women from Burma, as you probably know. Burma has been in a state of civil war for a long time, so you have people who are forced by conflict, by by famine, to look for economic opportunities uh, elsewhere, so it makes them very vulnerable to trafficking. And you see then women being kidnapped, being abducted, being taken to China, and then being forced into marriage. And, in essence, what our report, which will come out in a couple of weeks' documents, is not so much the desire of men to be married but the desire of their families for children. So we documented women who were abducted, kept imprisoned by families, being forced to become pregnant, and then many who were released or allowed to return home without their children once they'd given birth once or twice. So you're seeing families go to extreme and extremely abusive um, measures to be able to, to obtain wives for their sons, to obtain children, and so on. So it gives rise to things that are profoundly harmful and abusive to women.
0: With the end of China's one-child policy in 2015, do you think that this
2: problem will subside? No, because you already have a huge demographic problem. So you hope that the problem will slowly begin to subside, but you effectively already have a generation where there are many more men than there are women in China. So you already have a problem where large numbers of men will not be able to find partners, will not be able to get married, will not be able to have children, if that's what they want. So it's a little bit late to deal with that generation.
0: Many provinces in China, and also I believe Vietnam, now have laws on the books that outlaw sex-selective abortion. Are those type of laws the way forward?
2: I don't think so. You know, I think that outlawing sex-selective abortions has simply been another burden on women. So I think what what I would would advocate for would be, firstly, women being able to access a full range of sexual and reproductive health care, which includes information about contraception, access to contraception, access to antenatal care, you know, a whole range of sort of services that allow women to make real choices about their bodies and about continuing or ending pregnancies. And of course, what you really want is to have these services available in a society and a community that values equality between men and women, that respects women's rights to control their own bodies, that values the lives of girls in the same way as it does boys. You want to really sort of undermine a demand for, 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 for boys rather than girls and, and take away the pressure that women feel in having to produce a son rather than a daughter.
0: Lisa Gernholtz, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: To be frank, we debated whether or not to pair these two important, challenging stories in the same show. I had concerns. Asian women are already underrepresented in media and news coverage in general, and here we are doing a whole show about their bodies as reproductive vessels. We're also asking you to hold two seemingly contradictory arguments in your mind. That sex-selective abortion is not a problem, except, of course, when it is. To revisit the Prenda bill we talked about at the top of the show, these laws aren't about correcting for prenatal gender bias. If they were, you would see legislators also introducing bills to ban other methods of selecting for sex, like sperm sorting or sex-selective in vitro fertilization. But they're not. Prenda laws are about eliminating access to abortion. And it's particularly fucked up that these anti-choice lawmakers say they care so much about girls. These laws are designed to ensure girl fetuses are born, grow up into people with uteruses, and have their rights curtailed by the same concerned lawmakers. We also talked about whether or not sex-selective abortion is actually a problem in the US, and we cited a couple studies. There's the one based on the 2000 census, where researchers determined that foreign-born Korean, Indian, and Chinese Americans were more likely to have a boy as their third child if their first two children were girls. That is true. What the study also shows is that foreign-born Korean, Indian, and Chinese Americans were even more likely to have a girl as their third child if their first two children were boys. What this seems to suggest, and I have a BFA in theater, so as Republicans love to say, I'm not a scientist, is that foreign-born Korean, Indian, and Chinese Americans may be more willing to select for sex, which I'll remind you doesn't necessarily mean abortion, to have offspring that are a mix of girls and boys. And as Winnie and Becca said, a study using more recent data shows that Asian Americans as a group have a higher ratio of girl children at birth than white Americans. So to recap, when anti-abortion lawmakers make sex-selective abortion out to be some rampant problem in America, that's fear-mongering based on racist and patently false assumptions. But honestly, even if it were, which again, it's not, these laws still suck. It's still creepy old white dudes trying to put their crypt keeper hands all over the rights of women, and in this case, women of color. And that's what binds these two stories together. That Asian women are methodically devalued, oppressed, and stripped of agency by a patriarchal system. It is extremely worth noting that in South Korea in 1990, 116 boys were being born for every 100 girls. That's high, and that's skewed. By 2012, that rate fell to 106 boys for every 100 girls, which is normal. In 1985, 48% of South Korean women said they, quote, must have a son. By 2003, it was only 17 percent. Still not great, but way better. Can this be attributed to a sex-selective abortion ban? Nope. It was a transformation of cultural norms that increased the value of women. Over this time period, women were seeing increased access to education and job opportunities, and a number of equal rights lawsuits improved their standing in society. Whereas having a girl was once viewed as getting a lemon, it gradually started seeming pretty okay. What might we learn here? If you really care about bringing more women into this world, don't make women second-class citizens. Give us equal standing under the law, paid family leave, equal pay, and keep your hands off our reproductive rights. That's the show for today. Please join us next time when we hear a firsthand account of a migrant mother who is separated from her son at the U.S. Mexico border. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bagosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leith, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.